This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. like names to messages, and if, if you listen to any of my other sermons, you'll know that I will uh, spend a lot of time. Leslie uh, wasn't very impressed with my uh, name this, as the Sons of Issachar. I thought it was a great name, but I recognize you probably need to know what that means to fully appreciate the name. I had a, years ago, uh, you know how you can see how many hits you get on a, a sermon or a download of some kind? And so I had certain sermons that would just spike up, and there was other ones that would just be like, and I had this one that was lingering low, and it was called the Hands of Zerubbabel. And it was such a great title. And if you know what that means, it's like, that's brilliant. That is extraordinary. And no one liked it. No one was interested. In it. And so I've recognized I can't be too artistic uh, in my, my titling. They need to somehow strike a chord. And so I gave something the other week called The Vaccine Dilemma. And <laughs> but I can't do that every week. Uh, so this is maybe more on the artistic side. Once you understand what it is, you'll say, oh, okay, uh, I see where he's going with this. It's, it's actually really a powerful truth. Uh, and I like the title, The End of Ox Carts, Calling for a Radical Return to Radical Obedience. Radical is a dangerous word. A radical Muslim is not necessarily one you want to run into, right? especially if you're a Christian. And radical has fallen into disrepair as far as what it means and far as, as far as what it uh, is understood as. However, no matter how you cut it, as a Christian, we cannot be nominal. There has to be a heat and there has to be a fire within us. We have to be willing and ready to live boldly. And as you go through the landscape of Scripture, you're going to see certain people stand out. And God's going to point them out. He's going to make mention of them. And he'll make mention all throughout the Bible of those that stand out. And what is it about them? They are different than the others. There is a heat. There is a readiness within them to do hard things, to do bold things. And so how that fits in with the title, The End of Ox Carts, well, that'll be explained as we go. So the word zeal, uh, again, falls into sort of the category of radical. It's not necessarily one of those words we always know what to do with because some people say it and it sounds positive, and some people, it doesn't sound so positive. And so when you study the zealots of old, eh, you know, we're not exactly sure that we want to be one of those, you know, that are ready to eradicate all Romans and kill them off to purge Israel and to purify it. Uh, something doesn't seem totally right about that. However, they're on the right track. There is something that they're after. They're after purity, but what they're looking at is almost like a physical purity, a racial purity, as opposed to understanding a purity of the inner man. And Jesus is going to come in and begin to clarify what truly is a healthy zeal. So let me give you a definition, at least for our message. Great energy and eagerness for God. Well, that's not a bad thing. That's a very good thing. Readiness to do whatever it takes to please him. So Though this can be misused and has been misused many times uh, by many people, in fact, there's probably a few of us in here that have misused zeal, and yet it's a good thing in and of itself. I'm going to give you another word, obedience. Obedience is a very, very important complementary function to the word zeal. And so let me give you a definition, at least for our message, because there's a lot of ways you could define obedience. Harnessed to do everything God's way and only God's way. I want to obey God. There's all sorts of great stories in Scripture of someone coming up to a prophet and saying, could you say this instead of this? And the great statement of the prophets is, I can only say what God gives me to say. A prophet, a good prophet, is an obedient one. And so they're going to speak what God wants them to speak, even if it's going to lead to their own harm. And so obedience, harnessed to do everything God's way and only God's way. So we're going to create a word. And this is, you know, you can use this word in your vocabulary moving forward. I don't know if anyone's going to understand you. But zebedience, isn't that a cool word? 
and it's energetic obedience to the word of God. It's the combination of zeal, the readiness to say, God, I want to do this for you. It's a fervency of spirit, but matched with obedience. It's not just the fervency of spirit that is ready to do anything for God, but isn't governed by God. That's dangerous. It's like a wild stallion. It can trample you. However, when it's brought under harness and the master horseman rides it, it becomes Zebedience. So the next time, you know, you, if you have a racehorse someday, maybe you could name it Zebedience. So remember the song, Trust and Zebay. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and Zebay. See, some of you are like, I like the sound of this. This could really roll off the tongue. So the sailboat principle. So we have a sailboat, and I talked this weekend uh, with the ladies that were here for the conference about uh, the symbol of a sail to me in my life is very, very important. I'm not a, a sailor, okay? I've, I really have not spent a lot of time on sailboats, and so I'm not an expert with this, but I do know enough to be dangerous, and that is a sail has a purpose, and that's to catch wind. And when the wind blows, it's important that you put up the sail to catch it, and the wind uh, is going to be the lead instrument for a sailboat. However, could you imagine having a sailboat and putting down the sail and having a passion to say, I know what this boat is supposed to do. It's supposed to go somewhere. And so you go out there and you paddle. You give your best with your arms, and you're paddling and paddling and paddling. And this is what a lot of us do in our life is we mean well for God, and we have a vision for our boat to go somewhere and to do something mighty for God. But instead of heeding God's way of doing it, putting up our sail and saying, God, where do you want me to go? Here, God, I can't do this without you. I'm stuck in the water without you. There's a purpose for my boat, and it's to catch wind. Instead, we, with our zeal, begin to claw at the water and try and move ourselves in a direction that we deem best. And so I'm going to create that separation of two different ways that you can go about doing this thing called radical Christianity. Some of us in here are ready. We've been ready. This last year has disturbed us. And it sort of awakened us from a certain funk where we were soft and maybe even too comfortable in our Christianity. And something about this last year has disturbed us. And maybe you've even been disturbed with yourself of even how you spent this last year. Okay, I don't know what exactly is going on in you, but I know that something is stirring and rumbling within the church of Jesus Christ. And if I could say it very simply, it's like, I don't want to stay where I'm at. There is something more for my life, and dear Lord Jesus, I must have it. Don't let me stay here. Lord, I don't want to just be a part of the, this, this world, this morass that is sliding away from you in an ever-increasing fashion. I want to stand apart from it, even if it means I have to take risk, even if it means my life is endangered. Lord, I don't want to go that way. So when you get to that point, it's a very, very precious point. It's a stirring of the Holy Spirit right there. But what you do with it is very, very important, and that's why I'm bringing this up. It's the end of ox carts, even though you don't know what that means yet. The ox cart is the classic example of doing it, doing something for God, but doing it your way and getting into trouble. So the dangers of zeal. So we're going to go to the story of David, and so as I say ox cart, that might trigger something for you, because uh, it's in the story of David. It's a good story, and uh, I'm going to use the term consulting with the captains, because that's what David is going to do. David has taken over corporate Israel now. He was just the king of Judah, and now he's the king of Israel. I mean, it's a big moment in history, and he is going to begin to do certain things. He's eager. He's zealous for God. And there's certain things he's going to do, and they're good things. There's other things he's going to do, and they're right, but they're not totally right. He's a little off in how he's doing it. One of the reasons is he's consulting with the wrong group. He's consulting with his captains, asking the culture how you should wholeheartedly follow God. So if you went out and just sort of queried uh, people, it's like, okay, I want to wholeheartedly follow God. How would that look today? You would get an entire map of political correctness of how you could build a megachurch right now. And this is how you would do it. 
mega churches are very hard to build right now. Maybe I shouldn't even say a mega church, a, a, a popular church. Maybe I should say it that way. It's hard to, if, when you're six feet apart from everyone, it's very difficult to build a mega church. However, you would be told this is your stance on this point. This is what you present on this point. You would be a welcoming church. You do not hold to these standards. You can't enforce this. You would be welcoming to allow all these different things to come into your church because that's what people want. In other words, if you build and craft what you're doing based on, I mean, you have a genuine desire to build the church. However, if you're building it out of man's wisdom, out of man's insight, you're actually going to harm people instead of help people. And so so much of the church today is wired after that exact thing. That is actually the, this mega church movement was based on that. It's going to the people and saying, what do you want? And then building a church accordingly. And when you build a church that way, you actually are not doing God's work, even though you call it the church and you use the name Jesus in it. You are doing your work. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So we're going to see an illustration of this in 1 Chronicles 13, 1 through 4, and then 7 through 14. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now, this is a really challenging thing because if you read this story and you're just sort of glancing through it, it's like, praise God, they're going to bring the ark back. Everything about the story is right. What they're doing is right. It's that they're not doing the right thing the right way. So they carry the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ohio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And David became angry because the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Therefore, that place is called Perazuzah to this day. This is a strange story for us to read and, and to discuss. It's like, what is that? Well, it's going to have an interpretation as we continue in the flow of history, and we're going to understand what took place here. But it's interesting because David is going to consult the captains. He, he is going to do that which is good in the eyes of the people. Isn't that just a fascinating description for it? The Bible seems to go out of its way to describe it that way. And it's very different than most of the rest of David's reign where he is going to inquire of the Lord. Instead, in this story, it actually goes out of its way to say he inquired of the captains. Isn't that just a strange thing? And you're going to see a, an odd impact. They're doing the right thing, but it's almost like paddling the boat, clawing at the water when you have a sail. It's like, uh, there's a better way to do this, David. Did you not know? So David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. It's like, boy, Obed-Edom sure did make out like a bandit in this story. You know what Uzzah means? So Uzzah, the one who put his hand on the, on the side of the ark, it means strength. So what has happened? I don't know if you've ever seen this in your own life, but when you manufacture the calling of God for your life. It's like, God, I'm going to serve you. And you step out and do something for God, and you mean it. You're zealous, and you want to serve him, but it's your own work. It's interesting, but you lose something. You lose strength. You oftentimes burn out. Okay, it's, it's a great way of describing what happens to you, because in your own strength, you cannot fulfill this grand calling. And you find a great weakness enters into your life. Oh, there it is in First Chronicles. It's actually a picture of it. So in the Old Testament, we're going to see multiple pictures of this. Ishmael and Isaac is a classic illustration. Abraham desires descendants, you know, someone to inherit uh, as opposed to just one of his servants in his house. And do you think he's being misled by the fact that he's expecting to have someone of his own body? No, he was promised by God to have it. This is a good thing. This is the right thing. However, he's going to do it in the wrong way. 
and he is going to take something into his own hands. It's like paddling in the sailboat instead of letting God do it. This is supposed to be my wind, Abraham. It's not supposed to be your paddling. And he is going to create what the Bible calls a wild donkey of a man. Isn't that a great description? And his name is Ishmael. And Ishmael is going to be sort of a thorn uh, in his side uh, and the people of Israel's side. The Isaac way is the other way. It is a different way, but it's a supernatural way. It's the way of promise. It's the way of God power. Only God could do that. And as a result, there's a distinction between them. And many of us are in an Abraham position right now. We're in a David position where we are ready to do something for God. And yet, how we do that is very, very important. So the wonders of zebedience, you guys starting to like this word, it's growing on you. The more I stick it on the screen, the more it'll feel like a normal word. So the first one is consulting with the captains. This is consulting with the Lord. Asking the word of God how you should wholeheartedly follow God. That's a novel idea, don't you think? It's like, God, I have a desire to serve you right now. This is like what's going on in Eric Ludi. The reason I'm even bringing this up is I have such a craving to not waste the remainder of my life. I know you, you could look at me and go, well, you think you're wasting your life? No, I actually think up to this point, I've lived to the degree I know to live for Jesus. But I don't want to justify a softness moving forward because of how I've lived the previous years. God, I want to stay sharp. Put me in the pencil sharpener again. I don't want to grow dull. I have one shot at this thing and I only have limited years left. I want to live it maxed out. God, please, I don't want to do this my way though. Because I have, if you get inside the mind of Eric, and I've never been in someone else's mind, so I don't know what it's like in there, right? But I know what it's like in here. And I've recognized, I remember a girl in high school, she looked at me, she goes, you're always thinking. And so what did I do in response to that? I thought. Uh, and I was saying, I'm thinking, what do other people do? Isn't that what a brain is for? I mean, what, what, what kind of accusation is that? You're always thinking. What do other people do? But I have so many ideas. I'm an ideas guy. And so I have ideas all the time. And you should see, I have whole folders in my, on my computer of book ideas, movie ideas, also, and I write them out. And so I could just spend hours, and we could be going through incredible ideas. You go, oh, that's a good idea. I know, it's a great idea. And for me, I have to take these ideas and constantly set them in God's hands. Because I could easily begin to paddle and say, God, I could do that for you. Instead of, God, I have one life here. I'm a sailboat. You fill me with your wind and you take me precisely where you want me to go. Because he can't take me in 30 directions. He's going to take me in one direction. And I want to go in that direction fully. So 1 Chronicles 15, 1 through 4, and then 12 through 15. Listen to this. Now, the, the context of this is the Philistines have just seen Saul go down. See, that was a battle with the Philistines. Saul is going to fall upon his sword. And so now they hear that they have crowned David king. They're not happy with that at all. So they want to kill David right in the very beginning of his reign. So they come to fight David. David is going to do something. You recognize this whole Uzzah thing didn't go over so well, right? So he is being corrected. Even though the scriptures don't go through the correction process in his soul, you're going to see it in his behavior. And it's going to say, David inquired of God. And God is going to say, go out against the Philistines, and you're going to win. And then just a few scriptures later, Again, the Philistines are going to attack, and it says, David inquired again of God. And so in this process, this is the very context for what I'm about to read. David prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Well, that's different than the first go around. You see, something is different. David doesn't know what to do. He knows he wants the ark, in, but he doesn't know how to get it there. And Obed-Edom sure does seem to be doing well. It'd be nice if the whole nation could be doing well because we have the ark where it's supposed to be again. So he recognizes that God has already prescribed how he is supposed to carry the ark. It's like, I don't know why David didn't think of that before. So David prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. 
And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. He said to them, you are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. You see it right there? You see, David recognizes he did something wrong. He had the right idea. I mean, none of us are going to criticize David for wanting the ark in Jerusalem. I mean, come on. This is, this is just the right thing. That's what God wants too. No, none of us can criticize Abraham for wanting a descendant because God had promised him his descendants will be as the sands of the seashore and the stars in the heaven. You can't criticize him for the desire and it was right what they were desiring to do. However, they took it into their own hands to do it their way instead of God's way. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. You do not carry it on an ox cart. You carry it on the shoulders of the Levites. Isn't that an interesting statement? There's two symbols of strength in the first story. Oxen are a symbol of strength in the Jewish culture, and in the name Uzzah. It's like man's strength, the natural strength. We could, this is just a good idea. Let's put it on an ox cart. That'll be a stable place. Who's ever going to think the shoulders of Levites? Doesn't that sound like the gospel of Jesus? We're going to carry the glory of God in this world. Well, let's find some oxen. No, I want the priests of God in the church to carry it on their shoulders. Isn't that amazing? It's like there was a proper way for this to be done. We need to come into alignment with it. The zeal minus Christ. Listen to this scripture in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews have a boat and they have zeal. And they are doing their best to get in the direction of righteousness, but it's their own attempts at it. And they're missing the fact that God is the one that carries this boat. God is actually the righteousness. And so as a result, they have zeal, but they're lacking knowledge. And I think that's a description of many of us at times, where we have the right desire and the right design. What we need to freshly do is yield to God and consult the Lord. We need to come to the word of God and say, God, but how do you desire me to live? The ox cart kings, zealous to do right, but lacking the knowledge of how. So if you look at the lineage of the kings of Judah, you're going to have David, who is going to be sort of their father of the lineage, and then Solomon is going to start out strong and then you know, veer off near the end, and he's going to do evil in the sight of the Lord. That's quite a statement when the man who is actually maybe more of a picture of Christ in the Old Testament than almost anyone else is actually going to, in the end, it's going to be declared of him that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, that's just, that's a hard one and a hollow one uh, for me. It's because I, I really like Solomon, uh, but that's a statement of fact. And the, the kingdom is going to be split. You're going to have a northern kingdom of 10 kingdoms of Israel, and you're going to have two kingdoms, which is basically Judah and then Benjamin gets sort of mixed in with them. And that's called the kingdom of Judah, which is where we get the word Jews from. And so this is the lineage through which Christ is going to come. And those kings, Rehoboam is going to be the son of, uh, of Solomon. And that lineage is going to have flickers of grandness, where this king is going to do as David did. And it's going to be, oh, it's like a return, a revival and yet every single one of them, it's going to say they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. Not every one of them. There's some evil ones mixed in too. But they're going to say when they do it right, they did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, but. And there's going to be like this caveat that is put in. Let me just go through. I'm going to call those the ox cart kings. They're zealous to do right, but lacking the knowledge of how. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. 
but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. What? Come on, Joash, why don't you get rid of the high places? What are you thinking? But he does right in the eyes of the Lord, but, let me give you another one. This is the son of Joash. And he, Amaziah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense in the high places. Now we are the son of uh, Amaziah, and that is, uh, and he, Azariah, also known as Uzziah, if you remember uh, Isaiah, you know, after King Uzziah died, that's the same guy. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done except that the high places were not removed and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And he, Jotham, this is the son of Uzziah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. You seeing a trend here? I'm calling these ox cart kings. They're doing that which is right, but there is something still wrong and it is actually creating a pending judgment upon the nation. It is actually an ever-growing weight that is coming upon this nation because they are doing something that is explicitly clarified not to do, and that is to have high places and to have false gods in your land. There it is. It's still there. Now, we keep thinking, well, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God is just like, okay, well, I mean, they're doing that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, come on, you have Ishmael. What's the problem here? God is looking for something. He is looking for something that would correct this. Now, this is what's going on inside of Eric here. As I'm, as I'm going through this, I'm saying, God, if I was described as a king, and this is my kingdom, you know, it's like this body. Have I done that which is right in the eyes of the Lord? So here would be my instinctive answer. Yes, I've done that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. Not always. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But overall, a general statement, which is the way the kings were measured, it's a general statement. But God, is there a but in my story? But he didn't remove the high places. And I feel, I feel a craving, a desire to go beyond this. Because there is something about being an American Christian, which I can look good in light of what the church is doing today, but still fall short of God's pattern. Because God's pattern is pretty extreme. You know, if you were to look at the life of Jesus and then follow the apostles into the New Testament, these guys, I mean, they're, they're turn up the volume so loud, it's obnoxious almost. You can't do that. You can't live that way. So let's dim that down a little and we'll come to sort of where we're at. Our version of radical here. Our version of radical here is just being willing to stand for the truth of God's word and say, yes, it's true. Jesus is the only way. And people are like, oh, did he just say that? Are you allowed to say that? Yes, Jesus is the only way. However, is there a higher degree that God is desiring to call me to where I am willing to risk my life at even a greater level? And this is what this past year has done for me. It has questioned a lot of the foundation stones in Eric to say, are you one of these kings, Eric? Are you happy being one of these kings if you were, Eric? Or do you want to be something beyond that? Does God have a calling for us as a church beyond just being Jotham, who did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord? I mean, come on, that's a great statement, but God, do we have to have a but on there? And that's exactly what I feel right now. That's the question for me. I do not want a but. And he desired to bring the Ark of Covenant to Jerusalem. Praise God, it's so good to hear that there's kings like that. But he put it on an ox cart. The poles on shoulder kings. In other words, you have the ox cart kings and you have these kings, two of them, that are going to do something completely different than their predecessors. And it's actually rather shocking because their predecessors in both cases were evil. And something about these men is going to be different. So they're zealous to do right and knowledgeable about how to do it. 2 Kings 18, 3-5, and he, Hezekiah, 
did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And there's no but. It's like, how refreshing is that? There's no but there. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses, serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Wow, what a statement. Now, here's the one I really want to focus on because there's something about this pattern that has stirred me. And I, I've been talking about it to myself all week. I brought it up in staff meeting this week, and that's Josiah. So 2 Kings 22, 1 through 2. Josiah, the son of Ammon and the grandson of Manasseh. Now, I put those parentheticals in there. Manasseh is, is going to be the first king in the line of Judah. In fact, I, I could even say in the line of Judah and in Israel, the description of him is going to be more evil than any other king I think I've ever heard. And that is that he doesn't just do that which Jeroboam did. That's the famous line in the line of kings of Israel, did what Jeroboam, son of Nebat, did. Oh, that's terrible. And then, but in this one, he does even worse than all the pagan nations around. And so that's the grandfather of Josiah. Now, the story doesn't finish there, right? But at the same time, I want to set, the, the story of Manasseh is a, a story all of its own. But that's actually the heritage that he's coming from. It's a dark, dark evil. Ammon is going to do all the evil that his father Manasseh had done. So even though Manasseh has a different finish than you might expect, Ammon is going to continue in the evil that his father had started. And Josiah was eight years old when he became king. In other words, we don't have a good foundation here. I don't know how you're feeling about it, but it doesn't look like it's going to go so hot. If you only have an eight-year-old and your dad and granddad have set a pattern where they have totally abolished truth, it's like the word of God is lost in Judah. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now listen to this. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. But it goes into greater detail in the story of Josiah to show you what happened. 2 Kings 22, 8, 10 through 11. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah. So I'm going to presume that's the 18th year of his reign. So he's 26 years old. That the king sent Shaphan the scribe to the house of the Lord. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. I, don't you, I, I feel the, the movie side of this. It's like you hear the background music and it's just like the key moment. We found a book. What, what book is this, guys? Do you have any idea what book this is? This is the word of God and it has been lost in Judah. Now I want us, our fat and happy Christianity here in America to feel afresh this Josiah moment where a book is presented to your soul. Did you know that there is an outline for how you do this? How you are to be a king in Judah? What this nation was built for? What its purpose is? We found a book. I think all of us need to re-find a book. And we need to have a Josiah moment. This is really powerful. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And by the way, if any of you have just read through the law of God, it is a long book. And so I don't know, it, it always, I'm glad scripture just sort of skips through all that uh, because we don't need to just sit there and wait for him to finish. It's just, it's done. He read it. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. There is something very, very significant about what is going to happen inside of Josiah. He is going to humble himself before the word of God. And he is going to declare, and this is my definition of like confession of sin. The behavior, the thinking, the actions of my life are wrong. Lord, you are right, and what you say about my actions is right, and that is that they are wrong. And Josiah is going to recognize on the individual level, 
I am wrong, he says. And on a national level, we are wrong. And he recognizes that a great wrath is upon Judah. There is a real judgment because God, the one who has spoken these words, cannot tell a lie. And when he says he's going to do something, he surely will. And therefore, there is a great pending judgment on our land. And his response is so profound to me because I know what's in that book. And yet I'm walking around doing my everyday thing. He had never heard the book before and he's going to hear it for the first time and it's going to shake him to the core and it's going to animate his life where he is going to use his position as king and he's going to do something. You may not be the king of a nation, but you do have a thought life, you do have a body, you do have time, and you do have relationships right around you. And you can make remedy. You can agree with the word of God and say, this stops now. If this is what your word says, Lord Jesus, I submit. You could tear your clothes if you want. That's not a normal thing for us as Americans to do, but I, I, you know, I don't know what that would be like. Some of us are like, I spent a lot on this shirt. <laughs> That's, that's a big deal. The Josiah response, let's give a, a word to describe it. Zebedience. It's not dutiful obedience. You guys know what that's like where you read the scriptures like, oh boy, great. All right, God, because I love you and because, you know, I, I don't want judgment on me, I'm willing to do this. This is zebedience. Oh, Lord. You are deserving. I desire you to have this kingdom. You must be honored here. And then he responds. And his response is something special. I'm not going to have time to go through all of his response, but it's something special. 2 Kings 23, 25. Now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So Eric, what sort of king are you described as? This is the question for me. Am I one who is doing right in the eyes of the Lord? But am I allowing an ox cart into a very sacred position in my life as a Christian? Am I allowing Ishmael in my life under the justification, but I'm still doing that which is right. And it's still better than everyone around me. All the nations around me are floundering in their sin, but I at least have a semblance of righteousness in my life. Or am I willing to be like Josiah and say, God, if there is any part of my life that doesn't agree with you, it goes. With all my heart, all my soul, and all my might, I'm very interested in that. That is what is stirring me. That is what I've been calling the Josiah response. That, oh Lord, I need you to ignite within me. When I was like Josiah, the 26-year-old Eric Ludi, it's fascinating to think of him being 26 years old and responding this way and remembering back to Eric Ludi at the age of 26. You know, there's, there's certain kings in the scriptures that are gonna start out really well and then just sort of, Peter out. I gave you the illustration of uh, Solomon earlier, but Jehu, if you study Jehu as a king in Israel, none of the kings of Israel ever do that, which is right. You ever notice that they all end up evil? Jehu was so close. Oh, Jehu, you're on the right track. And then pff, he's going to flounder and fall to pieces again. One of my, the things in the very beginning of our ministry, I, I started in ministry at, in the days of like Jimmy Swaggart and James Baker. Now, if you don't know who they are, you don't need to look it up. You don't need to study it. It's just floundering Christianity where there's a public egg in the face and where your leaders have been caught in scandal. And it's not very easy as a young Christian to know how to swallow that. And I remember feeling the commission of God to stand up and to do something with this life for Jesus. God, I do not want to turn out like that. God, I'm willing to serve you, but I need to know that I can go the distance. I do not want to be that. The one that after all these years ends up being a stain on the name of Jesus instead of one who honors Jesus to my dying breath. Is it possible? 
That was my entire discussion with Jesus at the very beginning. It's like, I'm willing to give you everything. I just want to know that it's possible to go the distance. 26-year-old Eric, I don't want to be outdone by a 26-year-old Eric. And yet I look back on Eric at that age and I recognize there are certain qualities that might make an older 50-year-old Eric squirm. And I remember I was in a pastoral staff meeting and this, I was traveling almost every weekend and speaking. Leslie and I were speaking all over the world at that time. And so this, this church that I would go to when I was in town, which wasn't even that often, wanted me to be a part of their pastoral staff meetings. So like, okay, sure. And so I come into their pastoral staff meeting and they're talking about their direction. And I remember I, I got up, I, I, I pace. If, you, if any of you know me, I pace when I talk. And if I have a really good idea, I have to move. And I couldn't pace in this little room that they were in. And so I perched on my chair. I literally got up on my chair and was like this. I had so much energy and I, was, I needed to say something. I didn't know how to say it. It's like Elihu of Barakel in the book of Job. It's like bubbling within him and it's going to come out. No, it came out. It came out. And I said something. I don't have an exact quote for it, but guys, you're so concerned about pleasing the people in this church. How about we all go up to the mountains, we spend a week fasting and praying, and we hear the word of God. What does he want for this church? And then if everyone leaves because we are following God, who cares? Because we are following God. Total silence around the table. <laughs> all right, uh, the next order of business. I mean, literally, they totally ignored what I said. This one guy, I still remember the statement, his pastor said at a different time, sort of later after everything had cooled off a little, he looks across and he says, Eric, I just want to encourage you. I was, I was like you once. And here's what I thought. I didn't say it out loud. Praise God. <laughs> but I said, I, here's what's in my head. I do not want to grow up to be like you. I do not want to lose my fire. I don't want to lose it. There's always a better way of dishing it out. And, you know, if, if you have that lava pool inside of you, you know how hard it is sometimes to harness it and to have it come out graciously, kindly, mercifully. But I don't want to lose it. I don't want to lose the lava. I don't want to lose the fervor. I don't want to lose the zeal. It just, you know, God, harness this somehow. When I was like Josiah, so I remember I was uh, at a, mega church and I was on a missionary team and we were visiting this one church and there was something being spoken up there on stage that I could not submit to. I don't remember what it was, but I <laughs> got up and I walked out and the whole team's like, what's he doing? What's he doing? And I walked out and I was not going to stand for that. And I got out to the bus and it was locked. So I stood outside the bus waiting. Then all the, our team come around, and there I am standing in front of the bus like, hey, guys. <laughs> uh, there was this other uh, church. It was in, uh, <clears throat> I was working at a halfway house with all these uh, men that were coming off of the streets, and most of them were still uh, in a very bad condition. And the church, that, then I had to go to the church that the leaders went to, and it was the weirdest church in the world. So if you think you've seen the weirdest church in the world, I've been to it, okay? Uh, it was, they had this prophetess lady that, that ran it, and she would prophesy over everyone in the front. So she would sit in a chair, and people would come up, and then she would prophesy. Now, it, I'm not against the word prophecy. I'm not against the concept of it. I'm against what she was doing. What she was doing, she would speak words like cursing, over people at times. Like, you are going to die. I see death in your future. I mean, literally, like this. So Eric, you could just imagine, young Eric, right? <laughs> I get up. I didn't know what to do because I'm like submitted to a ministry. This is the church that they go to and I'm supposed to go here and I'm trying to learn how to be submissive, right? I mean, that's, that's part of the Christian life. And yet I cannot sit by and do nothing when this is happening. So I went up to the front knelt down in the front as this lady was praying, and I canceled it out with my prayer. Lord, <laughs> 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 
Whatever is being spoken here, I ask that your truth would reign. All the evil would be nullified. That's what I was doing in the front. So that's a weird church. Now you have this lady, and now you have Eric in the front. (laughs) I came home from this, and I'm just like, I'm on fire, right? I'm just this young buck that's ready to turn the world on its head. And I remember movie theaters became my great opponent. (laughs) So I would go on a run in the morning, there was a movie theater. So I went into the parking lot. It's empty parking lot. It's early in the morning. I kneel down. And I prayed against that movie theater. And even when Leslie was first getting to know me, we were driving down the interstate in Colorado, and I looked at, pointed at a movie theater. I said, that place is a pit. <laughs> she, she still remembers this. And if I were to say to you, you know, all of us have a little discomfort when we're around a young Eric. Okay, we're like, Eric needs to be harnessed a little. There's a sweeter way of doing it, and you're exactly right. It is hard to know how to handle the Josiah response, and it's very easy to stick it on an ox cart. It's very easy to create an Ishmael, but here's what I want to encourage us as the body, to be willing to allow that Josiah fervor to enter into us afresh. Yes, I know it can be misused. Eric Ludi has misused it. But it's not because I didn't desire the right thing. I desire the ark in Jerusalem. I desire God to get his glory. And I want all of us to be ready and willing to get uncomfortable and to do things that this culture is not going to smile upon to stand for what is right, right now in this generation. The way of God more accurately. I love this statement about uh, Apollos. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is a guy who's speaking accurately, but he is minimized in his knowledge base. He knows the baptism of John, which is repentance, but he doesn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hand in the glove. So I talk about the hand in the glove a lot. You have this hand that desires to express something, but because it is invisible, you can't see it and you don't know what it's trying to express. It waves, you don't see it. It points, you don't see it. It beckons, you don't see it. And there's this glove which is us, that is created in the image of the invisible. And when we submit properly, it's incredible, but the invisible actually can be seen because we are visible. And so as a result, when we agree with this invisible hand and it waves, what do we do? We wave. And when it points, what do we do? We point. When it beckons, we beckon. However, that's not the way it works because we have rebelled. It's called sin. And we have left the hand. And we're over here flopping around as gloves, trying to be righteous and trying to mimic a hand. When we see the hand, we're like, oh, I'm supposed to do what the hand does. What do we do? We sort of jiggle around over here as work gloves. We can't do this in our own strength. So what we need is not just zeal to do that which the hand does. We need to do something else. So the way, remember I called the way more accurately. So what's the way? I am designed to reveal the perfect movements of the hand. That is the way. That's what we were all designed for, to reveal the perfect movements of the hand. I want the ark in Jerusalem. It is the way. It is the right thing. I want to have descendants, and my descendants will be as the sands of the seashore. God has promised, of course. He's in alignment with it. However, there is a way more accurately. David is going to stick that ark on an ox cart. And as a result, it is going to harm his nation instead of help his nation. We have a desire, and that desire could be good. We know the way. We want to please God, but there is a way more accurate. So more accurately. So the way is I'm designed to reveal the perfect movements of the hand. Listen to this but only by yielding to the hand and letting it move inside me 
and do the work. What is the secret of a work glove? To be indwelled by the hand. How are you going to do the work of the hand? Not out of your own zeal, but out of his. His working within you. When you yield to God and his Holy Spirit moves inside of you, suddenly you are able to accomplish something in this earth that otherwise you couldn't. But it's not you doing it. It's him doing it in and through you. You want the Ark of Covenant. You want the power of God to be demonstrated once again in this territory and in this territory. It's a good desire. We want to see Jesus Christ crowned king in this world. We want his truth to reign. We want every knee to bow and every tongue to confess. All right? You want to do this? I want to explain to you a way more accurately than just bopping people in the nose, yelling at them on the street corner. Allow Jesus to move inside. And what results out of that? Jesus spoke some pretty salty words at times. He may speak through you with boldness and clarity. He also may say, zip it, kneel down, take a basin of water, remove their shoes and wash their feet. When we do it his way, the world is changed. When we do it our way, we actually lose strength. It actually harms us. I want us to be described as a generation that did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And we did as our father David did, or for our sake, we did as Jesus commanded us. And we tore down the high places. We didn't allow any but in the description of this generation, but we were fervent for the Lord in agreement with his word. The principle of wind, don't ever take it for granted. This weekend, many of you were here for the conference this weekend. And I used this illustration and I said, when the wind is blowing, you want to catch it. You see, a sailboat moves by the wind. And if you are as a sailboat, sorry, I'm mixing metaphors. I go from hand and gloves to sailboats. But if you are a sailboat, God has a commission for you. But there is an agreement point that we have, and that is we need to put up that sail. And we need to catch his movement. And simple rule of thumb, some of us think this. It's like, well, you know, I'll put up my sail maybe in a month or so. Or maybe when I'm uh, married and I have kids and my life is a little more dull. That's what people think marriage and kids is. <laughs> then I'll put up my sail and I'll get serious about Jesus. But right now, these are my fun years. It's the number one way to destroy your life is have that thought. You see, you're taking wind for granted. When God is moving in your life, catch it. You cannot presume upon God because there will come a time in the future where we'll say, okay, God, I'm ready. You stick up your sail and there's no wind. You can't muster wind. God gives wind. God is giving you wind this weekend for some of you today. And he's saying, would you put up your sail? Or if you want to go back to the glove analogy, would you empty your glove of all that's in it? What's inside your glove? You pull out, it's all these hankies and they say self on it. Get all that out so that he can move in and have you. So whatever it is, do not take the movement of God, the conviction of God, lightly. Treat it as precious in your life. The fellowship of the burning heart, also known as the fellowship of the Zebedian. So in history, there's a phrase, and uh, some of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozier, Oswald Chambers, they both refer to the fellowship of the burning heart. And when you hear that phrase, doesn't it make you want to be a part of it? I want to be a part of that fellowship. And this is what it is. It's the burning heart. It's that Zebedian. It's that willingness to allow God to, to burn inside of you with fervor, with fight, with resolve, with truth, with purity. You see, a fire purifies. And if you desire to be in that fellowship, you have to be willing to be as Josiah. You have to be willing to go the full distance. You can't just cut it short and say, well, that's not going to go over well in this culture. But to say, God, what do you want for this culture? You know, it's not easy to do certain things right now. There are certain racial tensions which make it very difficult to say certain things. It's like, wow, how do you even address that? There are certain gender issues, sexual issues that are so weird, so weird 
when someone can identify as an elephant and we have to nod along and say, well, good for you. That's odd. There is a way that is more accurate than that. How do we as Christians address a culture that is literally crumbling before us? See, it's going to hazard our life, and many of us are sensing that. If I really give what God is wanting, that could mean something difficult for me. Could mean imprisonment as we move forward. Could mean death. You see, Eric has a smile on these points. I have a strange attraction to the challenge of the days in which we live. And I don't know where that comes from other than it's a gift. But I look at where we're at right now, and even though I love our country and I love the religious liberties we have, and I, do, and I love our constitution, I love our American experiment, I think it's brilliant, and I think it's amazing, and I'm so privileged to have grown up in it. I want to build my life and I want to build my family to be ready to live in a hostile culture like most Christians throughout history have lived. I don't want to make my Christianity only work in a system like America. I want a version of Christianity that's ready and adaptable to go anywhere on earth in any time period of history and boldly represent Jesus Christ. So I guess my invitation to you is, do you want in on that? You see a Josiah response. There's a fellowship and it's taking uh, <clears throat> applicants right now. Do you want to be in the fellowship of the burning heart? Those that are willing to say goodbye to the earthly systems around us and all the pleasures and all the comforts that are guaranteed with it and to say, I'm standing with Jesus. It's tough, but it's rewarding. You'll, you're never going to find a Christian in this fellowship that is going to say that they have regrets for giving up everything for Jesus. That's the weirdest thing about it. It's like, if you talk to any of them, anyone, I mean, you can talk to me. I've given up tons of things in my life for Jesus. I've been falsely accused. I've been maligned. I've been extorted. I've had all sorts of bizarre things happen to me simply because of my stand for Jesus. And guess what? If you say, Eric, do you regret those decisions? Oh, no. This is the life, capital L. You want to find the life? Yield to Jesus. Let him move in and let him begin to direct your life. Beth and Monty, do you guys mind coming up and getting uh, prepared? Beth, do you need a uh, pedestal? Okay, you guys set for that? All right. So as we close, we're going to transition into a time of worship. And uh, what I want it to be for us is an activation time where we actually agree with God. If we have Ishmael in our life, that we deal with it and we go after Isaac. If we have ox carts in our life, we deal with it and we go after the poles on the shoulders of the Levites, the more accurate way. That we allow God to correct us. He's very gentle in how he does it. If we have a Joash response to the truth, I want us to begin to have a Josiah response with no buts in there. This is what I'm dealing with in my own soul, and I just invite you to deal with it in your soul. I do not want the end of my life to just be, yeah, that guy lived better than most. I want to be one that shines for Jesus. So let's close in prayer. And I want you to set your hearts in a position that is malleable and pliable to what God desires to speak to us as we close. And so as we enter into worship, it's a genuine worship as opposed to a forced worship. Father, here we are. Desirous for your ways. And to have your ways, we need to let go of our ways. To have your truth, we need to let go of our version of cultural truth. To have your purity, we need to let go of the soot of this world. Lord, I ask that you would bring about your work of grace in us today. That you would refine us, that you would purify us so that you could be exalted in us. 
Lord, we desire the ark of God, the Holy Spirit in us. And so, Lord Jesus, may we do it your way. It's not something we whip up and we work up. It's something we yield to. And we say, God, here is your humble vessel. This is no longer about me. This is about you. This is no longer for my pleasure, my comforts, the visions that I have for this life on this earth. But it is about you and your vision that you have for my life on this earth. You know why you created me, Lord. And I don't want to try and paddle my way to that end. I want to put up my sail and allow you to take me to that end. Lord, thank you for planting us in this hour, in this time of history, with these challenges around us. You have given us all that we need for life and godliness. You have given us everything we need to thrive in this time. So Lord, with great expectation, we look to you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. To take this specific message deeper through our daily Thunder discussions, visit ellerslie.com, where you can also explore our sermon library or learn more about joining us in person at the Church at Ellerslie here in Windsor, Colorado. Thanks for listening.